The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Roads Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Trip Talk for this week. 56 years ago today, as we are broadcasting, President John F. Kennedy, 35th President of the United States, was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Myself and my broadcast partner, Suzanne Mitchell, who joins us today, will be commemorating that terrible day in Dallas. So please stay tuned. We'll be back right after this. The holiday gift-giving season soon will be right around the corner. It's not too early to fuel the open road dreams of special people in your life with a subscription to American Road Magazine. With exciting features, quality writing, and beautiful photography in every issue, American Road makes a perfect gift for road-tripping moms and dads, gallivanting grandparents, adventurous aunts and uncles. Maybe that special friend will enjoy it too. Visit AmericanRoadMagazine.com, click subscribe, and for a limited time, you can enter the code KKNW to receive 25% off your subscription. Seattle, Tacoma, Antwerp? That's right. We're streamed worldwide on our app and on the web at 1150kknw.com. Welcome back to American Road Trip Talk, everyone. This is from November 22nd, 1963. Don't forget, President Kennedy's speech today has been billed as a major address. KLIF News, of course, will be bringing you excerpts of that speech throughout the afternoon, okay? My fine. Away we go on the Rex Joe Show. Here is a further report after we have just received word that shots have been fired at the Kennedy Motorcade. We just talked with the police department. Here was that conversation. Several persons arrived at Kaufman and no information is being given at this time. But you did have reports of uh, shots being fired. We had reports, yes, sir. KLIF News on the Department Hospital to confirm the reports that someone had been wounded in the firing of shots in the Kennedy Motorcade in downtown Dallas. Stay tuned to Cliff News. Prices. And now we take you to Joe Long in KLIF Mobile News Unit number four in downtown Dallas. The latest information, and things are rather confused at this moment, shots definitely were fired at the presidential motorcade as it passed through downtown Dallas. All squads are converging code three on the, in the area of Elm and Houston in downtown. There is a tentative description of the shooting suspect, a man, a white male, believed to be approximately 30 years old, reportedly armed with a 30 caliber rifle. How many shots were fired? How many persons, if any, were struck and wounded? We do not know yet. Very close mouthed officials now clapping down on the entire story. We'll bring you what details are available just as quickly as they come into our possession. Joe Long, the Mobile News Unit number 41190 and out. Sandra B. has her troubles. Face the world with a clear face or money back. And now another report from Joe Long in downtown Dallas. Latest details on the chase and search in downtown Dallas. An unidentified man fired several shots from a, what apparently was a high-powered 30 caliber rifle at the presidential motorcade. So far, the authorities are not releasing details on who, if anyone, was hit by any of the bullets or how badly they were injured. Parkland Hospital being very closed-mouthed about the situation, but the search now centers at the area of Elm and Houston near the old Texas School Book Depository building, and there is a possibility 
that the would-be assassin is still inside that building. All available downtown units are converging at emergency speed to that area. The entire area has been blocked off. It is roped off now. No one allowed in or out as the search for this would-be presidential assassin continues in downtown Dallas. What had been a very smooth journey to Texas for the president and his wife and other officials, Vice President and Mrs. Lyndon Johnson, now has turned in to another black smear. And we are keeping up to date on all details through the official police officer sources and will bring you full details as soon as they're available. Joe Long's with Mobile News Unit number 41190 and out. I do 90% of your work. That was from November 22nd, 1963. I was nine years old. I remember sitting in my fourth grade classroom and our teacher, Mrs. Knoll, which is ironic given talk of the grassy knoll, Mrs. Knoll was conducting, I don't even remember what the subject was. I do recall that all of a sudden our principal came on the loudspeaker and said that we should tune into television, that the president of the United States had been shot and we should stand by for further information and tune into our our um, TV, which was right there in the classroom, even back then in 1963. And so we tuned in to CBS and Walter Cronkite. Minutes later, the, we received the word that um, from Walter Cronkite that the president indeed had died. And then we were instructed by our principal who came back on the loudspeaker to pray. And because I was a parochial school kid, we went across the parking lot to the church to pray for the soul of John F. Kennedy. Suzanne Mitchell is with me. Suzanne, my broadcast partner, I'm sure you remember where you were. I do. I was also in grammar school, and the word came down to me from a crossing guard as I was returning from lunch, going to a, a city school in Chicago. We went to and from lunch, went home. So I went home from lunch. I was returning for the afternoon session, and the crossing guard told me, and I didn't believe him. I thought he was just making something up. So we we went into the school, and then, of course, the teacher also told us that, um, that President Kennedy had been shot, and everyone was sent home for the day, mm. where I found my mother in front of the television crying. So it was it was a sad day, and, uh, and I stayed in front of the television television as well, not really understanding what was happening in the world. Indelible memories. We have a guest we would like to speak with now, a man who is steeped in assassination history and lore as it concerns the 35th president. Stephen Fagan is the curator of the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. Stephen, do we have you on the line? Yes, I'm here. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us. I know that it's been an exceptionally busy day for you, being November 22. Welcome to the show. And I understand that you uh, stepped away from a conference where it's just concluded and you placed the call into our program. We are grateful. Can you tell us, sir, what happened today at the conference? What, what were the key subjects here 56 years on from the day of the assassination itself? Sure. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, we just concluded at our museum four days of, uh, of programs that looked at uh, the life of Lee Harvey Oswald and commemorated the uh, assassination of President Kennedy. We had a conversation with 
Ruth Payne, uh, Marina Oswald's friend, and it was in Ruth Payne's garage that Oswald's rifle was uh, stored up until the morning of the assassination. We also had a clinical psychologist come and uh, delve into the psyche of Lee Harvey Oswald. And then uh, on Thursday, last night, we had a wonderful concert by a local uh, high school percussion ensemble who did a live film score to a wonderful new compilation of uh, home movie footage from our collection. And then today we concluded our series with a conversation I did with a a veteran uh, KRLD CBS affiliate broadcaster here in Dallas who covered the story that weekend and actually uh, had a direct interaction with Lee Harvey Oswald the night of the assassination. So those were the programs at the museum. And then as soon as I finished that last program, I walked down the street past Dealey Plaza to a hotel here, and uh, there is an assassination researchers conference going on. And I was uh, very kindly invited to sit on a panel uh, to discuss the, the collections and resources at the Sixth Floor Museum. And so I uh, just completed that panel, and I am calling you uh, from right outside the conference room. I can't thank you enough for that, Stephen. What a very busy day for you, as might be expected. I've seen your recorded work, video work, on YouTube, and I encourage people to go there. If you go to YouTube and you put the Sixth Floor Museum, you will see a lot that is well worth watching, and you will see Stephen Fagan as he delivers information that is of great historical importance. Stephen, looking at you, I take you to be a man much too young to have actually been around when the assassination happened. <laughs> well, I very much appreciate that because I get asked on an almost daily basis where I was when uh, Kennedy was shot. But, but you're right. I was uh, not quite around at the time, but uh, my interest in this uh, definitely comes from firsthand experience. Both of my parents were school kids in Dallas at the time of the assassination. Uh, in fact, my father's birthday was November 21st, the day before. And uh, like so many kids around the world, but particularly local kids here in Dallas, I have found there was this almost this sense of trauma associated with living through the assassination of the president. And uh, I grew up immersed in this as both local history, but local history with international uh, implications. And so I became very interested in it early on, primarily because of the uh, firsthand accounts shared by my parents. The terrible event of that day shook the world. I can tell, and of course you know this, Stephen, being the curator, being a, a man steeped in history. There, but I can tell you that around the world it reverberated to everyone's horror. It certainly did, and we see this documented uh, over and over again in our oral history project. Uh, just a small portion of the interviews we've recorded uh, are on our YouTube channel. We've actually recorded over 1,900 interviews with people from all over the world, and these include the school children of the 1960s. It really doesn't matter where you were, whether you were folding laundry, watching As the World Turns, or waiting in a cafeteria lunch line, or riding in a taxi cab, or even in another country. Uh, there is a commonality to this experience, and I have yet to meet a person who can't tell me exactly where they were when, when they heard the news. It's a cultural touchstone for all of us, much like 9-11 uh, and going back to my grandparents' generation, Pearl Harbor. Stephen, I, I was thinking earlier that there are people who make pilgrimages to Normandy or to Vietnam or to various places where they've been that have those kind of uh, tragic uh, consequences and events that have happened. 
And I'm guessing that when people come to the Sixth Floor Museum, they're pretty reverential and and they make the pilgrimage to that museum in the same way that they might to a, a war site. Um, do you find that people are, are talkative or do you find they're pretty quiet? Well, Dealey Plaza is very much a site of necessary pilgrimage. There's no question about it. And we find um, two audiences at our museum. We find those that we refer to as the rememberers, those who come steeped in their own memories and reflect on where they were and maybe find a little bit of catharsis uh, by visiting the site and seeing it firsthand. But then we have uh, an even larger group, this second audience of people who have no firsthand memories of the assassination, and they're drawn for various reasons, including uh, a curiosity about the story because of speculation and theories and, and books and documentaries over the years that, that has built up this mystique around the site. Um, but there's a tantalizing immediacy about Dealey Plaza. It's really small. It's actually a lot smaller than it appears in films and photographs. And and it looks very much like it did that day. And so there is always this sort of solemn, somber atmosphere in the plaza because you walk around and, you know, there are few places in um, this country where you can point to a geographic spot on the ground and say world history changed right here, maybe Gettysburg. Uh, but certainly uh, Dealey Plaza is one of those sites that's palpably charged like that. And so there, there is, I think, a degree of reverence regardless of what brings people to the site. And properly so, Stephen. I wanted to ask about the museum itself in another way. I want to make sure I have this right. Was it doubtful at any point that the building itself would be saved or perhaps repurposed before the decision was made to create the museum? Absolutely. The, uh, the fate of the Texas School Book Depository was in question uh, beginning around 1970. That's when the, the Texas School Book Depository Company moved out. The building was sold at auction. It was bought by, um, of all people, a music promoter from Nashville who loved President Kennedy. And uh, he eventually lost ownership of the building because he couldn't uh, generate any funds to uh, fulfill his ambition of creating a museum. And so the building just sat there kind of staring out with these vacant and accusing eyes. And there were many in the Dallas community who felt like this being the darkest moment in the city's modern history, um, the event which uh, earned Dallas the nickname City of Hate or City of Shame, uh, many prominent Dallasites, including Tom Landry of the Dallas Cowboys, Ross Perot, even Mary Kay of Mary Kay Cosmetics, publicly advocated for tearing down the School Book Depository, uh, so much so that demolition permits were even filed with the city of Dallas in the um, uh, mid-'70s. Fortunately, on a split vote, uh, those permits were temporarily frozen, and uh, that paved the way for Dallas County, the county government, to actually step in and buy the building in 1978. They saved it from being torn down, and they did so, strangely enough, by making it a useful part of the community. There was a very savvy public works director in 1978 who realized that the best way to preserve this building was to make it something useful. And so he um, orchestrated the shift, the move of the uh, Dallas County government into the school book depository. So from 1981 to the present day, uh, the school book depository building has been the seat of our local government. Dallas County government is in that building, public works, the DA's office, it's, uh, the civil division of the DA's office, it's all in our building. And then our museum came along uh, several years later after a great deal of controversy and 
community introspection because how how do you preserve what hurts? How do you go back in time and take a really dark and tragic moment and do justice to it by remembering it properly? And that's exactly the, the existential question for a building like that of uh, terrible historical importance and yet being used in the way that you have described, serving a greater purpose, not simply to remember, which is would be justification enough, but to serve these other purposes healthy to a community. Thank you for that explanation, Stephen. I did want to ask you, because one of the purposes of American Road Trip Talk is to get people into their cars and out to visit famous sites and also the out-of-the-way places throughout North America. In Dallas, Dealey Plaza, you can't exactly miss it, can you? So the Sixth Floor Museum, Dealey Plaza, if people decide, and I can tell you for pretty much a 100% certainty that Suzanne Mitchell and myself, we are partnered and we will make that trip. That is a pilgrimage for us. And there will come a time when we will be able to do that. But we appeal to baby boomers, road trippers, people, somewhat older people, somewhat younger as well. To go to the Sixth Floor Museum, how would you get there? And once you get there, in a general way, if you would, Stephen, tell us what we can expect to find. Sure. Uh, well, there's plenty of parking uh, around the Dealey Plaza area, and it's best just to park your car or if you're staying nearby, take an Uber, whatever. But uh, it's best to, to be on foot because you really want to walk around uh, the plaza and see all these recognizable sites and also see the street from those vantage points. I mean, it's all still there, the pedestal where Abraham Zapruder uh, took his famous 8-millimeter home movie. You can stand on that pedestal today, exactly uh, in the footprints of Abraham Zapruder. You can go behind the stockade fence atop the grassy knoll and contemplate whether you believe a, a second gunman may have been back there that day firing at the president. Uh, you can go on the triple uh, underpass, the railroad overpass, and uh, look at this panoramic perspective of Dealey Plaza and see the building from a, a very unique perspective. So there's a lot to see in the plaza itself. Uh, our museum is, of course, in the School Book Depository building. We're on the sixth and seventh floors of that building. There's a separate visitor center entrance uh, because it is a county building. There's a separate entrance just for the museum. So you walk in the visitor center, and uh, if you have your tickets, uh, you can go straight up, or if you need to purchase your tickets, you can do so there. And then you take an elevator that actually goes up the outside of the building goes past the five floors of county offices and connects via a sky bridge into what was a window in 1963. You literally step through a window into the uh, historic space of the depository on the sixth floor. And then our exhibit really begins in the early 1960s. Uh, we have to invest ourselves in the Kennedy story to appreciate the magnitude that his death had on people around the world. So we learn a little bit about President Kennedy, the Kennedy family, um, the years in the White House, the social and economic programs, foreign policy, the Cold War, all of these sorts of things are covered in brief. Um, you have to remember two-thirds of our visitors were born after 1963, so there is this necessary context that has to be uh, explained. And then you make your way to a reconstruction of that southeast corner crime scene, the Sniper's Perch. It's been reconstructed based on Dallas police crime scene photographs, and you can see it. It's protected behind glass but you can see it from all angles. And uh, then from that point, you explore the assassination however you choose. You can go through those four days and 
watch a very moving uh, video about the, uh, the, the, the funeral and the national and world response to the assassination. You can go the investigations route and look at the Warren Commission and the, the follow-up government investigations. But all these different paths kind of converge with the lingering question of who was responsible. Was it Oswald? Was it an assassination? Or was it a conspiracy in the assassination? And we leave that uh, up to our visitors to decide. We don't, we don't, say, uh, we don't take a position on, on what actually happened. And then our, the last section of the exhibit before you leave the sixth floor really delves into the Kennedy legacy and what he left behind, because that's a challenge at a site like ours, is to find meaning in what is essentially a meaningless act of violence. So we look at the Kennedy legacy from the perspective of civil rights, space, technology, social activism, and arts, American arts and culture. Uh, and from there, you can go up to the seventh floor where we have uh, changing exhibitions, we have educational programming and things like that. So uh, that's kind of an overview of what you can find uh, both outside in the plaza and then inside uh, our museum. And I would recommend for anyone planning to come, because it is a relatively small space and there is uh, an international interest in this story, um, to, to get your tickets on our website early. Uh, our website is really easy to remember, jfk.org, jfk.org. You can get your tickets in advance, uh, and that way you don't have to wait in sometimes very long lines at the site. Uh, we get visitation of um, a little over 400,000 people a year. Oh, wow. wow. That, is, that is good to know, that that yeah. many people want to make that pilgrimage. I'm also yeah. very curious, Stephen, and uh, I know the answer to the question, but for our listeners, I want to put this out there. Whatever happened to the actual car that um, President Kennedy was riding in when he was assassinated? Because I know that it's not at your location. Right. That's a, that's a very popular question, and, and the answer usually surprises people quite a bit that uh, that car, which was leased to the Secret Service by the Ford Motor Company, uh, was sent back um, uh, to Ford, and they basically stripped it down to its frame and then rebuilt it with uh, reinforced doors and a permanent hard shell top, and then it was uh, put back into presidential service and used by um, uh, several presidents after President Kennedy. Johnson, uh, Nixon, Ford, I think all used that car. It was retired during the Carter presidency, and uh, per the a lease agreement with the Secret Service. That car was sent back to Dearborn, Michigan, and it is now on display uh, at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn. It is displayed as the Kennedy car. That is how it's labeled and how it's promoted, but I mean, you can't actually see any part of it that was the Kennedy car. It's just the frame. Um, the, the car was completely deconstructed and rebuilt, but it's still, I've been there, I've seen the car. It still gives me chills to be that close to um, even the frame of the automobile that played such a crucial role in history. And the car, thank you for all that detail. It's important to keep it in context that after a presidential assassination, of course, the Secret Service, the United States government would do everything they could to prevent such a thing from happening again. And so what you were looking at is not simply the car itself, but the history of the event and the, the aftermath and the precautions taken because there was an assassination. And so it, the car has its own evolution in a way. It does. And uh, what surprises people the most is the notion that other presidents rode in that vehicle, regardless of security upgrades. It's, 
um, it's strange and, and kind of eerie to imagine uh, President Johnson or President Nixon riding in what is essentially, you know, the Kennedy death car, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, but I think, you know, it's just it was just the process at that time. They didn't want to waste what was a customized automobile designed for the president of the United States. And so it was just a matter of making the necessary security upgrades, particularly that hard shell top. That, that, uh, that car was no longer a convertible after the assassination. And in terms of the motorcade route itself, that's something that fascinates me. One of the things that I have maintained and really come to appreciate only in recent years, actually, is that I believe it was the Dallas Morning Herald, correct me if I'm wrong, but the uh, quite inadvertently, but nevertheless helpfully, the motorcade route was published and that gave the assassin, as most people uh, maintain, Lee Harvey Oswald, that's the commonly accepted uh, stories that he assassinated John F. Kennedy. And in so, in so doing, he had the benefit not only of his perch, which I believe was about 88 feet away, something like that. It wasn't a long mm-hmm. shot that he had to take, a long target even though it was slowly moving. But also he had the benefit of this mapped out motorcade route because the newspaper published it wanting people to come out and see their president. That's exactly right. Uh, Both of the Dallas newspapers actually published in print stories of a street-by-street layout uh, on Tuesday of that week, November 19th, and then on Thursday evening, the 21st, the evening paper published a rather large map on the front page showing the entire motorcade route. And then the morning of the assassination, a very famous uh, front page of the Dallas Morning News had that um, that map, which actually generated a conspiracy theory because that particular map, because it was printed rather small, didn't show the very small turn from Maine to Houston to Elm, right, in Dealey Plaza. It simply showed the motorcade route going from Maine directly onto the freeway, which physically you can't do because there's a concrete median separating Maine from Elm. That's what necessitated that that turn from Maine to Houston to Elm to get through Dealey Plaza to the freeway. Uh, but because that map was printed incorrectly the morning of the assassination, researchers who were not familiar with Dallas geography uh, speculated that the route was changed at the last minute by these sinister government forces, and it was proof of a conspiracy. And uh, even though it can that, that particular theory can be debunked with numerous uh, pieces of evidence, including the newspaper accounts I just mentioned, um, I still get asked about that. Almost every week, uh, it is a very popular myth associated with the assassination, and I think that's one of the reasons why all these years later, 56 years, uh, there are so many of these little uh, details, these speculations, these myths. Um, some of them can be disproven, but you know, sometimes they get swept up and, and published so many times in so many books or included in so many documentaries that they just become part of the lore, and people who don't necessarily know better uh, uh, believe them. They buy into these. Stephen Fagan, curator of the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza. It will be an honor to meet you one day, sir, when we visit the museum. Thank you for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. November 22, 1963. We will remember. Until next week, drive safely and dream well.